No one has ever seen God, the only Son who is the same as God and is at the Father's side. He has made him known. We've been taking a look at uh, one of Jesus' friends, best friends, the Apostle John. We've been looking at his unique perspective on Christmas over the last couple weeks, and we end with one singular verse that you just heard here tonight from John 1.18. That verse begins by saying, no one has ever seen God. Uh, an understated acknowledgement of what humanity has had to repeatedly relearn from millennia to try to connect the dots back to something or someone bigger than ourselves. And even without a a shepherd, a manger, no swaddling clothes, uh, John's Christmas account is a serious, well-regarded attempt to try to piece together a credible picture of the person and character of God. What I'm reading from today, right here, in the English language, is a book, really a product, of a fancy term called exegesis. The basic idea of this term exegesis is a translation. Why do people not call it a translation? Because it's actually a little more complicated than that. It requires connecting more dots back to the time of the Bible. Uh, there is no one Greek text the New Testament was, uh, is drawn from. There are multiple Greek texts, 99.5% uh, of which are consistent with one another. But once in a while, you get these things called variants. Uh, in fact, if you're reading from one of these English translations of the Bible today, you'll see a footnote next to the only God in verse 18, under which, if you go to the bottom and see in really small lettering, some manuscripts, the only Son. Why is this? Because some copies of the original manuscripts are more reliable than others. The good news is that we have approximately 5,000 surviving manuscripts of the New Testament. You can compare that to 49 copies of Aristotle's greatest work, or seven of Plato's, and you get the idea that the New Testament is the most, in my opinion, historically reliable ancient work that we have, especially given the fact that 99.5% of these 5,000 manuscripts agree. Even still, even still, we got to work backwards to connect the dots. For example, you had church councils, but before that, we had early church fathers confirming what was reliable, what was used, what was not used. Uh, we look at ancient city centers where Christianity thrived, and from which we see consistently come out of there gospels and letters that were used in those places. And while I think the result is the most historically reliable ancient work we have, the New Testament, this Bible is still probably four, five, six steps removed from the eyewitnesses' account of the first century. Four, five, six steps from trying to connect back to something or someone bigger than ourselves, which is what we've been doing for millennia, right? Scientists, mathematicians like Blaise Pascal, philosophical endeavors like the cosmological argument, the uncaused cause, archaeologists like Sir William Ramsey have all explicitly made attempts to connect what they're learning in present day back to someone divine. Partially, 
never conclusively, as our author John says, no one has ever seen God. But then he also says in this verse, but he is, Jesus, the exegesis of God. Remember that fancy term I began with? I threw it out to you. Didn't do that just to impress you. Maybe a little bit. Not, not much. This word is used here at the end of verse 18. Jesus himself is God's translation of an otherwise foreign language to us. Seamlessly connecting all the dots back to someone bigger than ourselves, to the divine. A fellow pastor I know was once sharing, uh, was sharing that, that someone once approached him looking for an airtight argument for Christianity. And he just said to him, well, you know, I, I'm sure if I could just solve the problem of, of evil, if I could just get a good airtight argument for evil, for the existence of God, for, for this radical idea of grace, then I might believe in the doctrine and the theology of Christianity. And this pastor responded with one of the wisest things I've ever heard. He said, perhaps God meant not to give you an airtight argument, but an airtight person. Perfectly loving, perfectly knowledgeable, perfectly wise. And I would argue that is what we not only want the most, but need the most. Not really an airtight argument, but an airtight person. A few weeks ago, I spent an entire Sunday afternoon on the phone with uh, Xfinity uh, about a billing charge. Didn't start on the phone. By the way, this is the fourth month in a row I contacted them about the same billing situation, right? First, I navigated. The journey began by navigating through their online uh, virtual support. Then I was chatting to someone on my laptop, but I knew to get this fully and finally corrected after four errors, I got to speak with a person, right? You got to speak with a manager. And that's what we want, right? When we reach out to customer support, we want, dare I say, yearn. I think we yearn. We yearn for a person. That's what we need. There's a depth of knowledge, wisdom, a level of responsiveness we get versus what might be very accurate knowledge on the dreaded fact page of a website, right? Nobody wants the fact page. <laughs> we want a person who can do something about our problem. By the way, that's why all these tech companies, prominent here, Silicon Valley, develop personas like Siri and Alexa. They did their research because they knew a persona Something as close as possible to a person is what we really want when seeking answers. A person, the right person, intuitively gets the results we want, which is why Apple called her Siri, which I mean, I know this fun fact I learned this week, which in Norwegian means beautiful woman who leads you to victory. <laughs> because everybody wants someone. That's what we want. Jesus is the translation of God a person who is an airtight argument for God's existence and goodness. One more story tonight I want to share with you. My wife Katie and I, we have two boys, two wonderful boys, Mason and Gage. When the boys were very young, my job at night was uh, bathing, brushing, and bedtime. Bathing, brushing, bedtime, right? included in which were bedtime stories, and I really enjoyed these. They allowed my creativity to run wild. I'm not very artistic in other ways, but I can tell a story, and I can make stuff up. So I created a story called The Tales of Sir Gage-a-Lot. Uh, Gage is our youngest, which is a, you know, a tale of a brave medieval knight. Uh, 
And it was an ongoing story. It kept going every, every night. Our, our older son uh, was represented by uh, Mesa Cook. His name is Mason. was a very creative Mesa Cook. He was the resident chef who fed Sir Gage a lot. He would make uh, ridiculous, silly meals like ravioli filled with gummy bears and things like that. Katie also had, was a character in the story. Though she was not present in the room when I would tell the story, she was usually the princess and uh, occasionally the dragon, uh, which is... <laughs> which is something she's learning just now. And not something I said, not something I'm proud of. Not something I'm proud of, but I wanted to be honest with you guys and vulnerable. Um, listen, you know, it's marriage. Sometimes you have good nights, sometimes bad nights, whatever. All right, so. <laughs> As the narrator and author of the story, which I was, I would play whatever the story needed to come to a resolution. Right, so I was a companion to Sir Gage a lot when he needed a friend. I was a wizard when he needed a miracle. I was a jester when he needs some cheering up when he was down. When the author writes himself into the story, he can be whatever the story needs to achieve a redemptive resolution. The previously unseen God of the universe inserted himself into the story of human history through the person of Jesus Christ. He wrote himself into the story. And in doing so, he became what we needed. He became a friend. He became a friend to those considered traitors and outcasts. He became a, a redemptive priest to the more conspicuous sinners who were in search of forgiveness. He became an arbiter of justice for those in society who exploited the more vulnerable in the community. He became a prophet for people who needed hope. He became a teacher for those who needed and desperately longed for the good news. And to some, he became a God, a God to those who acknowledged, I've never heard a man teach like this before. And then witnessed him rise from the dead. He became all redemptive things to all people because he wrote himself into the story. And I'm so glad he did, for my sake and for yours. I want to encourage you this Christmas Eve to give Jesus a second look. To really give him a second look. Him, not what others say about him. Not how Christians represent him. Some Christians represent him. Not even what the church makes about him or uses him. Just him. Just Jesus, a second look in your life. Starting in January, we're going to spend each Sunday doing that, giving Jesus a second look, seeing how he responds to life's biggest questions. And I hope you might join us for that because he can be to you the person you are seeking. He personally wants to relate to you. God of the universe, relate to you. The final piece of this verse I haven't yet mentioned is where it says, the only God who is at the Father's side. This literally translates the only God who is in the Father's bosom. It's a peculiar way of putting that, right? It has a little linkage to the author of our story, John. He uses this term, bosom, during his last moments with Jesus before his death. He's at the dinner table with Jesus. And in this time, in the first century, the table would have been in the center of the room, the center of a circle. And you'd have all these benches lining up around the circle where people would take of the bread and they would eat. So you have all the heads facing inward of the circle, lying down, which means John 
was sitting on Jesus' bench, lying against his chest, resting against his bosom, it says. That's the image we hear of Jesus with God the Father. Jesus has this kind of relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit. Though he could not see his Father while on earth, he rested in him nonetheless, confident in his presence with him. And Jesus goes on to say, that relationship is something he promises to any who would just simply trust and follow him. The same love the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father will be in all who follow him. The same relationship of affection, of mutual honor, of intimacy available to you. All you have to do is trust that Jesus is the translation of God. Friends, you're never going to get, you're never going to get an airtight argument. What you can get, even tonight, is an airtight person ready to respond relationally to you. Pray with me if you would. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are willing not just to send a an argument, a proposition for us to study and learn, a, a philosophy, a scientific in inquiry, a, a mathematical equation pointing back to you, but instead you sent a person as your argument, You're a person as the airtight reason to believe there's a God who cares about us. And Jesus, we thank you for showing us on this earth that you're a God who cares about us, forgiving people who knew they needed help, standing up for people who are the most vulnerable in society, giving hope to those who never before experienced hope in a dark world, and being a savior, a God, to those who needed rescuing and saw you being risen from the dead. Jesus, I pray tonight that that would be the, the pebble in the shoe that we're left with, to give you a second look. Just you, Jesus. Just the one who claims to be the translation of an otherwise foreign language, the God of the universe. I pray that many would give you that second look tonight and during this Christmas season. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.